I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Frank. Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films the world is wrong about. I'm one of your hosts, my name is Andras Jones. And I'm one of the hosts, and my name is Brian Connolly. And neither of us is wearing a paper mache head on this episode. Uh, we are here <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that you know of. That you know of. But we are here to discuss Frank and I chose this film, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. Brian, what did you heard about this film before you saw it? It was very popular at the video store, Vulcan Video. This movie rented a lot, and I didn't really know why, because I looked at it and was sort of like, what is this like phony Michelle Gondry bullshit? Like, what is this quirky, the hipster crap? Like, I would just look at the cover with his head, and I'd be like, I don't want to watch that. Like, wh- why is anyone watching this movie? This looks like sub-subpar, like, film festival sort of thing. And so I just totally, you know, disregarded it and just washed it from my memory. And then I saw it on... You brought it up a few months ago, being an episode you wanted to do, and I remember being like, oh, that's not going to be good. <laughs> like, I don't, like, maybe he likes it because it's, like, about... Like a band, I don't know. Like, why are we watching this movie? Like, I don't want to watch this movie. And uh, that's kind of my preconceived ideas of Frank. And I, I take it that you were pleasantly surprised. <laughs> I was more than pleasantly surprised. I was floored by this movie. This, I feel, is maybe the best movie you've picked so far for this podcast. Like, wow. really shocked at how much I didn't just accept this movie and like it but like loved it loved it and was taken totally by surprise by what it what it is and I don't know if it was because of the marketing that I was misled but like how can you market this movie I don't know like so it's like what makes the movie good you can only really gain by actually watching the whole thing so like (laughs) yeah now it's I'm excited to talk about it because like I really really like this movie a lot Great. Well, then uh, let's let's play a clip and then we'll come back and talk about it. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. It's been a long time since I've written anything. We've been working on the new music for 14 hours a day for 11 months now. It has not been easy. None of us has left Vetno since we got here. Yeah. Frank refuses to record the album until we have perfected each and every detail. He can be pitiless. My nest egg has been depleted a lot more than I anticipated. We've had to start rationing the food. 
And on top of all this, Clara's hatred of me remains as strong and as baffling as ever. I'll admit there have been times when I've considered leaving Vetna, but I'm still here. And I am glad when I see how many of you continue to join me on this journey. You know, despite all the hardships I've suffered here, took a shit. something inside me is beginning to stir. I've come to realize that this is my bluff Kansas. That here in Vetno, I have found my abusive childhood. My mental hospital. That which pushes me to my furthest corners. Frank, from 2014, directed by Lenny Abramson the year before his film Room garnered Brie Larson a star-making Oscar, is one of the best films I've seen about being in a band, wanting to be in a band, and about the creative process and creative people. It stars Michael Fassbender as the titular Frank, a singer and writer of songs who lives his life inside of a massive papier-mâché head. Inspired, but not based upon the story of Chris Sivey and his character Frank Sidebottom, Frank is really about John, played by Domhnall Gleeson, a frustrated songwriter who stumbles into a gig with Frank's unpronounceable so band. How would you describe the uh, CERN? How would you describe your music? Something tells me that you guys are the CERN for verb. We're still the Strumpet Bubba! This band has five and a half members. Frank on vocals, John on keyboards, Maggie Gyllenhaal's Clara on more ambitious keyboards, Francois Seville as Baroque on guitar, and Carla Azer, the only professional musician in the band, as Nana on drums. We're listening to the map. Still beer fatlock, smoked out cowpoke, sequined mountain lady. Digits, itchy britches I love you all I love you all I love half-member is Scoot McNary in a role I'm sure we're going to discuss at greater length in this episode. And since we're going to be unpacking this film pretty thoroughly, there's not much else to say except... Okay, so, 
Um, ask me how the world is wrong about this picture. <laughs> so how is the world wrong about this film? Well, so Lenny Abramson made the film Room with Brie Larson that she won the Academy Award for. And a lot of the best qualities of that film are in Frank. And that film's really, really, really good. I'm not trying to take anything away from it. But it, if you, I think of all of Lenny Abramson's films, it's the only one that a lot of people have seen. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here. I feel like the world of Frank is a more fun place to hang out <laughs> than the world of Room about a woman who is kept captive in a room with their child. Uh, it's actually a much sweeter film. That's what's so great about Frank is like the sweetness and the organic and quality to it. And the, like they both have this, the same qualities of great filmmaking. It's just if you had to ask me which I would think would be the nicer place to invite people to, Frank is that place. And... Yeah. I'm highly critical of muse of movies about bands and songwriting. I just feel like they're <laughs> usually wrong and manipulative and focused on the wrong things. And this one, boy, did it really strike home for me. Maybe you as a fellow Olympian also had similar feelings of like, whoa, this is this really nails something that yeah. I lived around or continue to live around, but definitely lived around in the 90s and aughts, early aughts in Olympia. Yeah. And yeah, I think mainly it's just, I I know very few people who have seen it. And so uh, it's not like, I, I haven't heard anything bad about the film. Did you, you usually do a, a search of reviews for these? Did you find any bad reviews that we need to take to task? That was all pretty positive. It was a lot of people being this is this movie is more than what you think it is. Is kind of what a lot of the the critics who took the time to write about it said. There wasn't anyone taking this movie down. I think it really is just a hard. It's hard when you make a smaller movie, even with famous people in it, to connect with people. It really has to like. I don't know if it's like the promotion or what it is that makes it cross over to have a bunch of people see it. But this movie just didn't quite crossover you know it just didn't quite i don't know if it just was too weird in the poster and everything was pushed like this giant you know fake head that the main one of the main people wears and that maybe just confused people or made it seem quirky and people didn't want to watch a quirky thing in 2014 even though it's not a quirky movie but it seemed like it could be i don't know but yeah it just critics seem to think it was pretty good i mean but yeah, it just didn't. This isn't a movie that anyone talks about at all. Yeah, yeah. It's maybe there's no, there isn't really a breakout performance in the film. Maybe that's part of it. You know, like obviously, Room had one standout, well, two standout performances: the the yeah. woman and, and her kid. Um, but all of this is really such an ensemble piece. So there, what there isn't like one, Oh my God, you have to see this for Maggie Gyllenhaal's performance, even though her performance is amazing. It might be, it's hard to say cause she's been so good in so many things, but this might be my favorite 
Maggie Gyllenhaal performance is just it's a bold statement. She's good in a lot of stuff. <laughs> She's good in a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff. Uh, so I don't. This is not meant to take anything down. It's just like I know this person so well, and yeah. she really and it, and usually and when the the people who are like this that I know, I don't have as like. They've never done anything as terrible as some of the stuff that she does. And yet the way she played it gave me some sympathy for this character who who doesn't play any play for sympathy at all. And it, yeah. I guess I, I think that's one of the great things that a performance can do is it can make you relate and sympathize with people who in other situations you're just frustrated and intimidated by. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Where do we, where do we start with this, with this? I guess let's talk about the Frank character. Now, Frank is sure. based upon the Frank side bottom character played by Chris Sivey. Or, well, it's inspired by that, but it's not based on him. I actually mm-hmm. watched the documentary on Chris Sivey, and it's it's a really great documentary, but he's a very, very different per- character and persona, it, it, it mm-hmm. almost diametrically opposed in that he was someone who was really seeking stardom and fell into this side gig of this character of Frank Sidebottom, whereas this is a film that in a lot of ways is about well, about not wanting to be successful, which again feels very Olympia, kill rock stars. Not kill rock stars in terms of what they were, which was creating rock stars, but kill rock stars in that I that ethos of that being a rock star kills the art. Yeah. Um, so, so aside from the Chris Sivey stuff, when I watched it, I felt like Frank had to be based upon Calvin Johnson from K records and beat happening and dub narcotic sound system. And I'm saying, of course, you know, all this stuff, Brian, but I'm just saying this because it's, <laughs> it's kind of inside but, unless you were part of that scene or lived in Olympia, but boy, hmm. did he remind me of Calvin Johnson? Yeah. Uh, I, it's funny. Cause I didn't think about that at all while watching the movie, but as you're saying it now, you're like, well, of course, like the way he sings that, that, that kind of, like, cause in my yeah. mind watching, it, I was like, "Oh, he kind of sounds like Ian Curtis from Joy, uh, or Ian Curtis from Joy Division, like that kind of brooding, I'm singing." Uh, but then, like, but the the, but yeah, totally Calvin Johnson, and like just the whole idea of like the the what he did with making these smaller bands, and they never broke to be big. And also, I I'm sure you have hung out with him a few times. He is a very strange man. Yeah, <laughs> just as a person. And uh, and it's not just some eccentric thing to you know to be cool in a band. Like there is something different about his mind, good or bad. You know, it's just sort of like there is an oddness around uh, around him. Um, and it also reminded me a lot of uh, just like stories I heard about like Daniel Johnston here in Austin, of just sort of that kind of eccentric you know person and uh, different type of music. But of Rocky Erickson, who also was in Austin and was just like a, there's something off about that person uh, and actually, you know, mental illness stuff going on with both those people and maybe all these people. 
Um, so I think the movie kind of hits into that, definitely that kind of singer songwriter, uh, the kind that should never be famous, was not meant, couldn't handle fame. <laughs> Shouldn't be. This It's too unique and too special that we don't want them to go through the, the rigmarole of the machine and be chewed out at the end because that would just be too sad and their brain wouldn't be able to handle it. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, when, go, going back to Calvin, the other part about it that really struck me is the balance of intimidating weirdness and genuine sweetness, like childish, childlike sweetness and openness. And that's one of these things that has always been charming and, well, charming and off-putting about like I say, being around uh, Calvin Johnson is that you do get this, like you're, you can't help but be intimidated, but everything he's doing is sort of saying pleasant expression, you know, knowing <laughs> friendly look, like describe it. But your head is still sort of intimidating. Well, underneath I'm giving you a welcoming smile. Would it help if I said my facial expressions out loud? Well, Maybe. Welcoming smile. And then throughout the movie, that becomes a bit, which I love. <laughs> it's one of yeah. many things. So it's a, as we describe this film, we're going to talk about some great performances. We're going to talk about the story. But I think, and maybe you'll agree with me, I think what makes this film so special is just lots of little details. Some of them mm-hmm. odd. Some of them pretty, like it, it's... The tone of this film is so, I don't want to even say strange. It's just perfect. It's this perfect tone that allows it to get away with being very moving at some points and being very funny at some points. Mm-hmm. But it never yeah. breaks. It never sh- It never yeah. feels like it shifts tone. It just keeps this wonderfully <laughs> odd tone. And every minute there's like some interesting little touch just happening and yeah the more you know more the more you've lived a life around this or in any way like this just it it opens you up and just feels so great and also challenges you i think this is a film that also challenges uh any viewer anyone who has any artistic pretensions of their own uh watching this uh this (laughs) film so And the movies it's a slow burn the movie itself like it really is like you don't realize what you're being hit with until it's till it's the last scene you know and like it's it's, it's an interesting and i don't know if it's maybe it's if it's because it's not made by an american like if this was an american movie it might have leaned kind of harder into like the quirky or like it just would have not been like there is a definite kind of a european sensibility in a way to the way this movie uh it kind of is laid out and plays along um, because the director's from Ireland. So maybe there's definitely something there that's, that I think if an American did this, it would just be more quirky and not as, you know, not as moving, I think. But like what I loved about this movie is it started out with like kind of quirky. And I was like, but this is like good quirky. This is funny. Like the very first scene when he's just trying to think of a song and he's just literally anything that's in front of him. He's just trying to write a little song about, and like that is so good. Just like kind of getting into his head right away of like this is how a songwriter thinks of the world, but in a very funny way. 
and you're like, okay, this is good. And then as the movie goes on and, and like, and Frank shows up with his big head, it's like, oh, this is like this kind of quirky movie. But then it turns into in the middle of the movie is kind of like a different sort of movie. And then the end of the movie is a different sort of movie, but it doesn't feel disjointed. It all is kind of slowly turns up all these ideas until it's kind of like this big idea at the end of the movie. And it's so well done. It's just, uh, it is, it's almost like a magic trick. I feel in a way. <laughs> yeah. How, how they, like at the end, I did not expect even while watching the movie to be like really moved emotionally. But by the end of the movie, like I was just sort of like sitting there feeling, having feelings, yeah. which is not how I, how the movie started with me. It's, uh, it's really interest. It's really just an interesting thing to go through this movie. It's like a fascinating journey. Yeah. So it, it, it's an, that's a that's a point to focus in on. So the film was written by John Ronson, who was a member of Frank Sidebottom's band. And so it's a it's a it's a UK production in some sense. And they are supposed to be a Euro or UK band. But the the main like they're all many of them are americans like scoot mcnary is an Amer very much an american maggie gyllenhaal it does it doesn't feel like an english band like that was one of the things in watching the chris sivey documentary it was like everyone's speaking with pronounced british accents yeah and it's a very uk thing and this feels like very not like intentionally with the casting trying to take it into a not a UK thing, <laughs> even though yeah. they come to America, it's sort of the big turn in, in the third act is that they come to America to perform at South by Southwest. When they did, there was, it was a little bit off putting for me. It was like, but you're all Americans. I mean, well, no, you're not. <laughs> Domin Hall Gleason isn't. And uh, Michael Fassbender isn't, but uh, something about the band felt very, it just, I think that was also part of the magic trick of it is just, I think if they had tried to tell the Chris Sivey story, it would have gotten bogged down in the details as opposed yeah. to being able to tell sort of more of a parable. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I like that they are American, but they're clearly like either they're expats or they're just like they're they don't fit in with the like the way that they are as a band and the way their band is. It's like, oh, this isn't the type of music that would normally headline a music festival in America or even England, really. <laughs> And so I like that it kind of gives them like the fact that they're in another country and having to come to America, even though they are Americans, really builds this sort of like outsider indie thing that they do have going on, as opposed to if they were just in a basement in like New York City or something. Right, right. So, as you said, the, the film begins with Domin Hall Gleason trying to be a songwriter and failing at it. Uh, just not even fail, not writing songs and putting them out there and having them rejected, as happened with Chris Sivey, but just not being able to write and wanting to be sort of wanting to be an artist, but not knowing how. And that will come up in the film throughout. And then as he's walking along and making all the stuff, he sees a, a poster for a band. Can you uh, can you <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even going to try. No. Song from Sorgrevinson. It's spelled S O R O N P R F B S. Soran Perfubs. 
and throughout the film <laughs> you can't you can't re- you're never really quite sure how to say this how to say this name part of the fun of this this movie that was one of the first so i'm just charmed already by these yeah, two things yeah one this yeah. guy who is sort of it's funny it reminded me of ishtar it's like he's doing those scenes the songwriter scenes from ishtar exactly with yeah, yeah. warren Beatty and dustin hoffman <laughs> except in his head as part of his internal monologue <laughs> and without paul williams to help them to make it funny uh, yeah. paul williams the songwriter not the director or the architect uh <laughs> so uh and then he he's he, he's up by the he's lives by the beach and he sees someone going crazy in the water and he turns <laughs> and he hears someone hears uh someone describing what's going on to him and he turns and sees one of my favorite current currently successful but not yet truly famous actors scoot mcnary i love this guy as an actor and uh his his character in this is my is my favorite among many favorite things in the film his is my favorite he's sort of doing this like young rock and roll warren oates thing (laughs) yeah (laughs) that i just i yeah, I, I absolutely love him. And he basically describes that the, this is their the keyboard player for their band uh, having a meltdown. And that's when Domin Hall Gleason says, well, I play keyboards. And he is invite. He's like, oh, Scoot McNary says, can you play C, G and F? He's like, yeah. <laughs> like, OK, come to the gig. What about rehearsals? Nope, just show up. So he goes and he shows up and there's this great band scene that seems like it's going to become one of the like one of the like a traditional rock and roll movie where the band is great and we are moved and it's awesome. But instead, uh, Maggie (laughs) Gyllenhaal, who we really don't recognize at first, she is not she doesn't get a movie star introduction. She has her hair in her face and she's playing her her keyboard and she completely melts down and throws her (laughs) keyboard over and stalks off and then that's the beginning of the movie Um, I want to say I actually had a situation where my band was playing a gig at a big college booking festival and my keyboard player I was in a band where the keyboard player melted down and pushed over their keyboards in the middle of the in the middle of the set. So I I did relate. I, I very much. I feel like it's it's strange, but that is like more a that is a common thing. Seeing a band have a breakdown on stage, like I think I've definitely seen that happen too. Like I think that's a it's like more common than it should be. Like you think they they would figure it out the other twenty three and a half hours that day, but it's just something about. Being on the stage, maybe the adrenaline, the anxiety, that like that's the best place to have your your meltdown. <laughs> well, I think there's something about. I do feel like there's something. If you need art to express yourself, which a lot of people who are drawn to the arts do, then 
it's because like so it makes sense like in social dealings you're just sort of casually like you just sort of know yeah. how to just deal with people's bullshit and stay inside your head but then when you're on stage and you start expressing yourself all of those feelings that you've been holding in come out and they can be overwhelming you know yeah so yeah it makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and this is also our introduction to Frank and he's he's great. The band is great and weird and wonderful and Domino Gleason has obviously the time of his life playing. He's like all of a sudden it's his dreams are coming true. He gets to be in a <laughs> band and then they leave. And he's back at his his crappy job and he gets a call from Scoot McNary. <laughs> I fucking love this call. <laughs> Hello? So, Lucas has been sectioned, and we need a new keyboard player. And Frank said, you know, remember that grateful-looking boy who jumped on the stage last week uninvited? <laughs> I wasn't uninvited. So, Frank Hello? said that he thought you brought something cherishable that night. But he can sound really muffled under the hat, so I thought he said that you brought something perishable. <laughs> I think almost every time Scoot McNary talks, I'm going to be very happy. Um, am I alone in this? You're not. You're not uh, saying, "Yeah, I agree." Did are you a fan of this guy? His name is familiar, but I'm trying to remember what else I've seen him in. Oh, what else has he been in? Well, he was in Destroyer. He played Nicole Kidman's husband in Destroyer. He was in Halt and Catch Fire, uh, the series that I love. He was in Argo as one of the uh, hostages. I feel like there's a bunch of other things. So this may be the first time I've seen him in anything because I've not seen any of those things that you just mentioned. So well, keep your eye out for this guy. He's <laughs> he is good. He's very good. I met him at a gig once and told him how much I love this film and he didn't care. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. He didn't care about you telling him or about the movie. It just is like he's sort of like, oh thanks, thanks. Uh, you know, whatever. So you know, tales from Hollywood. Uh, but back to this film. So uh, Hall Gleason gets this call inviting him to the gig. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah. And uh, so he, or not even to be at the gig. Can you, can you be at this place for us to pick you up in the van? And he, assume, he assumes it's for another show. But then he doesn't realize it's to be like living in their musician commune for a year <laughs> to make an album. <laughs> He got kind of kidnapped in a way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then that's when the movie shifts to an even more special place. I think that's where some real truth starts sitting in is like that whole great middle of the movie. I feel like it's like 40 minutes of the movie where they're just trying to make music in this remote location. And that's when it really feels like stories that I've heard of friends bands and like what the relationships are like between all these people and sort of like the ups and downs of when you're all together trying to be creative as a group. Um, I feel like that this movie really gets that part really right. Like what it's like to kind of the, the, the give and take of collaborating on music. Yeah. And Maggie Gyllenhaal's character really doesn't like uh, <laughs> John. 
the 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 keyboard player at all and makes it very clear that she hates him but frank is very welcoming and there's a i don't know there's this like sweet burgeoning friendship between the two of them that we watch clara looking on at with i don't know distrust hostility a look i mean come on Maggie Gyllenhaal's look is just a rogues gallery of the 90s and Olympia for me. Like, <laughs> I have known so many people who have looked at me the way that she looks at Domin Hall Gleason. <laughs> it's a lot of like, what is this fucking guy doing here? Just, what is this child doing here? Yeah. <laughs> like, you're not on the same level as us. Like, who the hell do you think you are? Sort of look. Um, and I, and I loved it. Like he, like Gleason's character is sort of like, like he is like, you don't realize it cause he seems positive at first, but he is kind of the slow poison that's sort of going to ruin this band in a way, <laughs> just, just by being positive to Frank and trying to, but I think that, I think the band was so used to just being like, we just play our weird stuff and we do what Frank wants to do. But then he has this dirty idea of like, well, why don't you write something that's a little catchy or a little positive or like something that's radio friendly. And I love that. That's how they sneak in. And it isn't like a corp. It's not like one trick pony where he has to go to the big office and meet the big corporate jerks. It's just another regular poor songwriter being like, well, maybe we can, I see potential and maybe we can try this. And that's enough to completely overhaul this band. Well, let's, <laughs> let's, 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 you're, you're jumping ahead a little bit because there's, <laughs> There's a lot before we get to that. So Scoot McNary's character is sort of like the kind of like the camp counselor and all this. We don't really know. Like he doesn't really play an instrument in the band. He works the board. He's kind of the sound guy, but he's the guy. He's also kind of a Bill Murray kind of character in his bathrobe. And was like, okay, this is how it goes, kid. This is how, you know, it's sort of like in if, if this were meatballs. <laughs> The, and so he's the guy who, like, Domhnall Gleeson is asking, like, so what's, like, what's, it? does he ever take the hat head off? He's trying to get information about Frank from him. And at some point, almost like he's talking to Domhnall Gleeson, but he's talking to us. He's like, look, you're just going to have to go with this. <laughs> Don't ask questions. Don't ask why. Just accept it and move on. And then in, in this conversation, he also reveals that, he was in a mental institution and that so was Frank. And he's, he's they, like, they had lost, they'd lost another keyboard player, the previous one. Like they're yeah. going through keyboard players in the way that spinal tap did drummers, which is not a good sign for Gleason's character. Um, so he, uh, but he, he reveals that he's like, yeah, he's like, I, I used to fuck mannequins. <laughs> it's a condition. <laughs> and this is the first time I picked up on like, oh, well, man, now you're in a band with a guy who wears a head, wears a big, like you're kind of, you're still, you're still kind of obsessed with mannequins, uh, which will come up later. And then, uh, so then we see the band and it's, it could be sort of like the kind of thing people don't like about Wes Anderson films when they're showing the band doing their field work. It could be kind of precious, but it's not. And if maybe it's because Frank's character with the head is 
both sort of benign but also dangerous. Uh, yeah. No, I love that whole part. Just like that whole... And you're right. Like, it could have been a precious montage. It could have felt like a Fairly Brothers movie or Wes Anderson movie where it's like gag, gag, gag in this, like, well-composed montage. But I like, like, seeing them kind of do their wild stuff and their weird, strange ways that they were, or were trying to record things. Or like, just they're all trying to work on one note at a time and all these little things that are get ja- jokes. But it's done so well. And, yeah, it doesn't feel like a quirky this is when the movie when i was like oh this isn't just some quirky thing this movie's working on another level like this isn't just some trying to be strange and arty like jokey thing like there's like there's truth within these jokes there's truth within these moments yeah and then this is (laughs) this is building up to what i what i found sort of the most painful and beautiful section of the film the hardest for me to watch and also it's the most challenging Frank and Gleason's character are bonding and at one point they're up all night and You've been up all night talking to the keyboard player? I'm not just a keyboard player. I write songs too. You write your own songs? Mm-hmm. I'd love to play some for you sometime. I really like that. Big non-threatening grin. Delighted look. Yeah, play one now. Play one now. Excellent. Not not right now. I'm okay. No, no. I'd love to hear one of your songs. I would too. Come on. I don't don't think so. Please. Hey, guys. John, he writes his own music. He's going to play some music for us. Come on. Clara. Share your music with us, John. Um... Play something. Okay. And he starts to play the songs that he was making up on the beach before they met him, which are all terrible. It's, you know, <laughs> he can't yeah, do and it. You can, and you can see the panic in his face of just like, oh, God, oh, oh, no. Like, <laughs> and it's like, in a, in a, it's like more nerve wracking than if he was on stage. It's like you're in an intimate setting with these people that you kind of respect and are your peers. And now they're, they, they want the private show of your song. Like, that's more scary than being in front of hundreds of strangers. Not that you kind of respect, <laughs> that you really, like, you, you want. You do, yeah. You, that you, you desperately you want, want their... to like you. Yeah. And we already know that you already desperately want to be an artist and want to be a songwriter. And you've made it into this big thing. And you, we know you can't do it. And it's, like, that is the, <laughs> that's the, like, I actually, I had to turn off the movie and go and... <laughs> Right, and work on a couple of songs that I've written just to remind myself, <laughs> this is not about me. This is not about you, Andres. But I feel like every artist feels that way in certain situations. Or we worry that we are... Like, if you are an artist and you are... you you Even if someone who's had some success as a creative performer in those fields, and especially as a songwriter, when you watch it, there's a part of you that feels like, yeah, all my everything I do is shit. Which is, it comes up later, but but then the, that's followed by what I, one of the things that I think is wonderful, which is Frank showing Gleason's character how easy it is. And he just makes up a song about a little fuzzle on a rug. And... <laughs> you can write a song about anything. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Like your socks here. 
They're pretty original. Hey, look at this. It's a little tuft in the carpet. I wonder how old he is in carpet years. Is it spring? Hmm. He's the first to wake, or is he old? But still strong enough to keep what winter wants to take. Lone standing tuft defies the foot. Is it luck that you're still standing? Not been flattened too. Do you tremble beneath the gentle breeze that's displaced by my shoe? Lone standing tall. Sorry. Frank. That's amazing. <laughs> Flattered grin, followed by a bashful half smile. No, people should know about you. You should be famous. I think if you aren't a songwriter and you watch that, what you think is one guy is bad and one guy is good. But if you are a songwriter and you watch it, it's like one guy is free, Frank, and the other guy is trying so hard that he'll never be able to do it because he's trying to do, he's trying, he's making an easy thing difficult. Uh, not that like, not to say that songwriting in general, well, again, if you've done it, then you know. It's like when people say acting is easy. Acting is easy if you know if you know how to act. Um, but a lot of people make it more difficult than it is. And then even though they know how to act, they're bad. And I feel like even <laughs> though Domin Hall Gleeson, like if he just let himself be dumb, which is kind of what Frank is trying to tell him. If you just let yourself write about what you see and be honest and not try so hard to be good, you'll actually be good. And I feel like that's that is such a it's something that I've tried to explain when talking with other songwriters so many times. And this film demonstrates it in just 10 minutes there so beautifully. Um, yeah. It, it it made me think of. Have you do you remember? Have you ever heard that Lou Reed song, Egg Cream? Uh, no. When I was a young man. So it's like you think when you hear like like it's Lou Reed basically singing about how much he loves egg creams and he gives the recipe for it and he lists the restaurants that he thinks are like the best places to get an egg cream and it's the first track on one of his albums <laughs> and it seems so frivolous and just like did he write this in 20 seconds maybe he's a very talented good songwriter or maybe he just you know just was able to like relax his mind and be like I'm going to write a really good song about egg creams and if someone else did it it might not be so good because like, like the the stuff that Gleason's coming up with is also just about mundane things like the little thing on the rug 
but this isn't good because he is trying too hard to he's overthinking it he's trying to make it clever or trying to really make it a great song as opposed to just letting it flow from him and just doing it with feeling but the other thing is that Gleason then basically says hey I have a nest egg yeah you know Albert Brooks might have some uh, misgivings about his use of the word, but he has a nest egg that he got from his, his grandfather and he's going to give it to the band so they can finish the record. And this sort of goes back to what you're talking about. He is. How do we do, how do we think about this Gleason character? He is because he is, he is sympathetic and he wants to help so badly that he like every little thing he does that's good is is bad <laughs> but i th- i think the thing is like i you and i know people like him and i think this is what you cut co- you come across in any art form is there's the franks and then there's the johns and you have the people who look at their art as like this is what it is like this is how i express myself i doesn't matter if nobody hears it like this is the only way that I can say my feelings or show what's in my head to if it's nobody, then that's what it is. And then as the other people are like more the business minded being like, well, you write it and then someone likes it and then you get an album and then you go on a tour and then you make some money and it's your job and you're successful. And it's not the bad way and it's not necessarily the wrong way, but it's just like, those are the two types of people that how they look at things. Some people uh, like with us or with our podcast, we're we're doing it. We're going to do it whether people listen to it or not because we like doing this. I like talking to you about movies, but there's other people who probably have more of the agenda. If like, you do the podcast, then we can maybe be on a DVD extra and then maybe we'll host a thing and then we'll f- be famous. Why? We'll be famous podcasters. Yeah, why are you doing and... the film... Like... Why are you doing the films that nobody likes? Why don't you do the films that people like? <laughs> do the <laughs> Avengers movies and you'll get more listeners. But that's, but that's not why we do it. And I think it's like that... It's definitely happens to a lot of bands a lot of bands that i know that kind of end up not being bands anymore like this kind of happens often where you have the people that liked just making the music and being creative and being in their 20s or whatever and you're just doing this because you're in your little bubble and then you're like well but how do we get and then there's maybe one person in the band be like but how do we get to the mainstream how do we and it'll kill the band like <laughs> there's many bands i like that had their great little thing going and then they signed with a major label or they made their big music video or they tried to go bigger and then the band just fell apart. They couldn't do it. And there's some bands that can do it where they all kind of get into a way and be like, okay, now we're REM and we're making our big albums now. You know? So it's it's <laughs> just depends on the people. He's not a bad guy. I think he means well. I just don't think he realizes that Frank and his band aren't the type of band that should be trying to appeal to everybody well i <laughs> they're not the band that's gonna do that <laughs> what what i like about this is that in in another in another movie i feel like in a lot of movies when they represent this dynamic the the gleason character would be portrayed as conniving and yeah. sort of cheesy in the sense of wearing his want like he like he doesn't really wear his wanting to be a pop star like he it's he's not craven he's not he's not a villain he's pathetic he's sad he wants to belong <laughs> to something and yeah. he 
only has got and he's got all of his cues from pop media and so yeah it's just there's the sad to me there's the sadness of the emptiness of him and he's trying to fill the <laughs> void inside of him with someone else's creativity and yeah it makes him frustratingly sympathetic because <laughs> i think we yeah. feel like the way frank does like oh this poor sad little guy he just wants to be a part of something and i want to encourage yeah. him and I think that's part of what makes the film so rich is that the slow turn from our sad hero to the villain that the Gleason character becomes really is just happens organically. And at no point. Well, I mean, maybe at one point he, he, he goes wrong but even that as someone who's in a band well we'll get to that there's a sense that even when he goes wrong he thinks he's helping like that sense of he's always helping but he's not helping <laughs> and and the, and the thing is that he, he is incapable of helping that's like this and we'll, we'll get there so anyway time passes all of a sudden Domino gleason who was like this uh you know sort of like baby-faced Ginger Boy is now a fully bearded Ian Anderson <laughs> from Jethro Tull lookalike. <laughs> and obviously yeah. they've been there a long time. We hear in voiceover that they're running, like the, the money's running out. He's put all of his money into this. It's running out. Now they're starting to have to ration stuff. And this has another one of my favorite fun Maggie Gyllenhaal moments. So he's rationing it. I don't know what he's getting. I don't know if it's chocolate but he's got some brown powder that he's squirreling away and trying to eat himself. And Maggie Gyllenhaal sees him eating it and attacks it and starts licking it off of his face. <laughs> she has all these just odd moments. I just, I fucking, I love it. And then uh, in a, a, uh, a bit of foreshadowing when she's uh, we've already seen her sort of playing with her knife. And then when they're recording, and listening back to the playback of their the album where they're finally getting into it, she's like, stab it, stab it, stab it. So stabbing is a big deal for Maggie Gyllenhaal's character. Um, <laughs> but I also really related to that. I know that feeling of listening to listening back to a playback, and it's such an emotional experience. It's so weird, you know. Have you recorded music before? Yeah, I mean, I know you've, been, you've, you've traveled with bands. <laughs> I have been around bands recording. Like, I've had friends' bands where I've sat in on kind of their sessions. I've been on tour with bands as, like, a roadie. I was in a band for one month and didn't last. <laughs> we never recorded. <laughs> what was the name of the band? Uh, the name of the band was... What was the name of the band? It was Steve, it was a Stephen Hawking themed band. I think it was called like Stephen Hawking's chair or Stephen Hawking's wheelchair. And the whole thing was that I was going to be Stephen Hawking leading this band. This was like, I was like 19. <laughs> it's just like, what would love songs be from the point of view of Stephen Hawking? So I sang in a very monotone computer type voice. We, we, I wrote one song. We practiced for two weeks. I showed up to practice on the third week. No one else showed up. And that was the end of the band. <laughs> so that's it. Did you ever yeah. consider Stephen Hawkwind? <laughs> oh, that 
That is so much better. No, I didn't know who Hawkwind was at the time, but that is a much better name. The music of so Hawkwind do that. sung in the style of Stephen <laughs> Hawking. Stephen Hawking. I like it. I like it. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, what I was tra- getting at was that there is just there is something that like when you're when you get so into a recording and you'll just like when you finished it and you're listening back to that mix it's such an intense experience and a year later that song will mean nothing like will almost mean nothing to you when you listen to it and you sort of wonder what how could i have been so like i there was a point when i was working on it where i would just listen to that song over and over 20 30 40 times and when it would hit this certain point i would be just like maggie jill and all stab it stab it stab it (laughs) and it's so important and then you finish the song and it's done and some people hear it and then it's just a song and you can't even imagine feeling as intense about it i don't know there's something that it just the capturing of the passion of the first listen back that they captured was really just fantastic Mm -hmm. so this is when tragedy strikes. Spoiler alerts, folks. I really hope you've already watched this film. This is when we can kind of tell, like at the, the last shot uh, of the, the playback, Scoot busts out beers, gives one to Frank. How is he going to drink it? We don't know. But then he cracks his beer and he just basically downs a whole beer. And there's something about it that is a little bit foreshadowing that I don't know. I don't know. Something's (laughs) going on here. And then after they've recorded the masterpiece, they wake up the next morning. And I find this, this is one of those, another little moment. We have the sense that the band, they all, that they really don't like each other, particularly that Maggie Gyllenhaal doesn't like Hall Gleason, but they wake up all in the same bed and you just get this sense of, like family, like they may not like each other, but they are now, they're all bound by the creation of this work. Yeah. And so he gets up and he walks out and he sees Frank hanging from a, from a tree, like, uh, having committed suicide. And he goes and he's like, Hey, hey, hey. And everyone comes and takes him down. And then Frank, comes around and they see and we realize that it was Scoot McNary's character wearing the Frank head. He finished the masterpiece and he killed himself uh, in the in the basically in the way that uh, all mannequin fuckers probably want to by taking on the persona of the mannequin that they have most wanted to have sex with. Um <laughs> whether it is physical sex or just spiritual, whatever, to merge with the mannequin he's been trying to merge with. And it's sad, but in that sort of Harold and Maude kind of yeah, yeah. way. Like yeah. It's sad and beautiful, and they have this Viking burial ce- uh, ceremony. Yeah, that part's great. And really uh, one of them puts a mannequin leg on his... which i think is great um and then they set it on fire and and frank is that's when frank says you were the best keyboard player we ever had and dominal gleason realizes wait he was the keyboard player 
And yeah, and that's when he realizes, oh, two of them now have gone down and now it's me. And then they have their <laughs> their evening of mourning and we have to accept one bit of magical realism here in that the boat somehow, which has gone off to, to the into the river or the lake or whatever, does come back to their shore having burned and uh, we accept that it. it's fine. But then there, uh, this is what, what leads to the next, I don't know, the next level of complexity in the Domenhall Gleason, Maggie Gyllenhaal relationship. He's out in the hot tub and she comes out to yell at him. And I like that she calls him a mediocre child. <laughs> it's a good diss. <laughs> there and uh and you want to describe this the scene I'm I'm doing all the talking here. <laughs> well, it's sort of like <laughs> I guess a microcosm of like a, of a what would happen in a screwball comedy if it was rated hard R, but you have this thing of like we hate each other. We hate each other a lot. We do not get along. Therefore, we should just have we should probably just have wild sex together in this hot tub. <laughs> and you're like, "Okay, all right, it just kind of makes that leap from hard emotions to physical attraction. It's like it's like you hate each other so much that maybe you do like at least like each other physically or just have to get your emotions out in the most primal way possible. <laughs> well, it's because they're yelling at each other and he gets so mad that he stands up out of the hot tub and he must have a very wonderful penis because <laughs> basically she looks at it and then the next thing you know they're having drowning sex basically she's she's having sex with him in the tub but also trying to drown him <laughs> yeah and then afterwards there's you know they're smoking their cigarettes and he thinks that they might be a couple now she's like no i hate you <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> T- totally and, believable. <laughs> and this is when, and all this time, uh, Gleason has been tweeting and posting about being in the band and his experience and building up followers. But no one in the band is on Twitter or does any of this because they're far too cool for that. And this is when, because of this, uh, South by Southwest reaches out to them and invites them to play a showcase. And this is when he has to tell the band about this. And of course, Maggie Gyllenhaal does not like it. And she accuses him of spying on them. He's basically doing what every band does, which is posting about their progress. But to this band, that is a violation. Yeah. <laughs> but then when Frank sees that uh, that Gleason has like I don't know three thousand followers. Why does it say two three seven five one at the bottom? That's the number of people who've watched the clip. Two three seven five one people are interested in us. Come on, Frank. It's like magic. I told you we could be big. And. I feel like this is the first point when we start to really kind of get a sense of the crack, the cracks in Frank's psyche. Yeah. 
Like up till now, he has seemed we he's represented silently as being erratic, but in a sort of creative way and a lovable yeah. way. But this is the first time we start to get a sense that there's something desperate and broken about him. And yeah. I feel like that's that's the real shift here as we start to move towards South by Southwest. It really <laughs> isn't that Gleason broke the band. He didn't know. Like there was he had no like base. He's surprised by this as well. Yeah. And but it amps up this pressure because the band know him. No, Frank, and kind of maybe have seen something like this play out before. Yeah. And I don't know. What did you make of that? I I think it's that this is when the movie gets like extra good to me. <laughs> Just because like it's it's starting to go into something that no, I don't think I've seen a movie deal with quite in this in this honest of a way of sort of like these artists, these people, these musicians that you think are like, oh, they're eccentric, oh, they're weirdos, oh, they make their weird little music. And you don't kind of question that maybe, they don't just think differently, but maybe there is like a mental illness at play, which is why they are acting differently or think differently or look at the world differently. And um, sometimes you have good days with your mental illness and it can just be a great creative output. And sometimes you have very bad days (laughs) with your mental illness or you don't realize when you're in a creative project with somebody who you think is just creative and interesting that in fact, maybe there's, there is like a problem with them that you didn't know until it becomes one or until you, or you you crack into this thing into their, in their mind. And I think that's, it's happened to me before with collaborating with people on projects where you don't realize that maybe there's something going on other than them being an eccentric creative. (laughs) And, and it's, and but like and there's this moment where Dom, where Gleason is sort of like realizes that maybe he shouldn't have done that, but he is again trying to almost just be helpful, being like, oh yeah, there are people that want to listen to your music, Frank. Like yes, and I don't think he's doing it to be malicious. I think he really is trying to like, I want to help this guy. I want I want his music and his and the stuff that he's making to reach people, and the rest of the band is sort of like, oh, you shouldn't have told him that he was this great or that people loved him or that he should you know like. Now, now this is going to be a problem, <laughs> and I just, I just love it. I just love how it kind of the movie now turns to this kind of movie. You know, I related to this as an Olympian, but I know that when you watched this, you also had some big Austin feelings because of the South by Southwest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I didn't know that was in this, and I mean, now it makes sense why it was so popular in Austin. Um. And like, you know, you see like every year you see all these bands that you've never heard of come come here hoping that this is their big break, thinking this is going to be the big thing. And most of them, it isn't. But there's always that hope that you'll come to South by and you'll come to Austin. And like, this is like the hub of cool, man. And you'll like, you're going to you can make it here. This is the festival that's going to make you. Um, And people come here from all over the world. For South by Southwest filmmakers and musicians in the hopes to uh, like not to toot my own horn, but I do have an award that I did win at South by Southwest <laughs> one year. So I made it. I did it. <laughs> I'm a success. Well, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I but think in, that I think everyone it, <laughs> who's ever been to one of these conferences or like there's if you've gone there as a performer, you 
try so hard to get booked and you do everything to get there and you really think that it's going to be a big deal. And then you find out the reality that you're just playing a half hour spot in some club while a bunch of other more famous people are playing in other bigger clubs. Yeah. And because like, and nobody, like nobody really cares. And even like, and yeah. And that's this big sort of turning point in this <laughs> when, so Frank is all like, Oh, people are, we're here to see our fans. People love us. We're coming to see our fans. This has happened. <laughs> and then the organizers are like, well, you know, we know who you are. That's why we invited you. Cause these two hipster girls, but you know, maybe a few other people will know. He's like, but we have 3,000 followers. She's like, well, yeah, but that probably translates to like one or two people. <laughs> and we see Frank really starting to melt down and the band realizing, oh, this was not a bad idea. This is not a good idea. And you can kind of relate to Gleason's character. Like once you're in that mode, it's just like, well, we got to have the shit. We, we okay, we're here. We've done everything to be here. We got to make a good showing. Like I'm, I'm remembering the conference, the the where my keyboard player threw over the keyboard. I remember that during that week he was having a rough time, and every, it wasn't just me. Every at that point, it was everyone in the band was like, "Well, come on, we just we can't get bogged down in this crap now. Let's just go and do this." And there's just sort of this, the show must go on quality. Like in another movie, the Gleason character would be the hero the one who's making it all happen, the one who's dealing with all these wild and crazy people who can't get their <laughs> shit together, and he's going to make sure that the show goes on. And in his mind, I think he, that's how he sees himself. Yeah. <laughs> he thinks he's in that movie. <laughs> but he's just poor, putting poor Frank through something that he should really not be going through, and it's just doing heavy damage to his mind yes, uh, and his soul. It's just like, like it gets literally to the point where he's in the fetal position, laying on the ground while they're trying to do a show. Like clearly like these, well, like wait, putting him on. in a place where he shouldn't hold go on. there, you know? Hold on. You're jumping ahead. You're jumping ahead because the band's got to break up before we get there. So, <laughs> so Maggie Gyllenhaal sees what's going on and she takes Frank off and she's like, she's off in a, like basically Frank is gone Domhnall Gleeson's looking for him. She he finds him in an alley with Maggie Gyllenhaal whispering under the mask, was in like into the neck hole of the mask, and we don't know what. But we know whatever she's saying. She's like, "Let's just go. Let's just leave. Let's just get out of here. This is terrible." And uh, Gleeson's character comes up and he's he's talking. He's telling. They basically have their showdown, and he's saying, "Frank, you got to do this. The people love you. It will be great. It will be great." And Frank reaches out his hand to him and he's cho once again, Frank is choosing the wrong path. Although in like we as a viewer, I don't know. I, I, when I watch it, there's still a part of me that is I'm enough of a showman. I want the show to go on. I want this to go well, uh, but it's not. And this is when they have their real viral moment because Maggie Gyllenhaal finally, uh, Brings to fruition all of her knife play and stabs <laughs> Domhnall Gleeson. It's very shocking. <laughs> and this all goes viral and it makes them even more of a hot thing at South by Southwest. But then when he goes, when they go back to the hotel, the, the rest of the band, the drummer who's played by Carla Azar, 
uh, who's also who's a real uh, she's the only I think not actor in the band and she is talking to Frank and she's saying he's sick and Domin Hall Gleason comes in and is like no he's not sick and he's like I'm not talking about him I'm talking about you and they're just tr- they're trying to convince Frank to just come back to being in the band and he stays loyal to Gleason's character and the rest the the guitarist and the drummer quit so now they have this big showcase and um oh I I got to back up here before this Frank writes a new song of ex- which is his extremely likable music <laughs> and I think I'm just going to play a clip of the extremely so, likable music so here. My most likable song ever. Coca-Cola, lipstick ring, go dance all night, dance all night. I've got dancing legs. Woo! I've got dancing legs. They won't stop me dancing, no. They won't stop me dancing. Kiss me, just kiss me. Kiss me, never die, Just the way you like it. Just the way you like it. Kiss me, kiss me. Lipstick, kiss me. Lipstick, Ringo. That's the way you like it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's basic. That is sort of what leads to all these breakdowns of the band. When the band realizes now, now we've broke. He's broken the music. The music too. It's not just broken his brain, but he's now our <laughs> songwriter is writing really bad songs. Um, so anyway, all of this leads to the big showcase and probably like the worst and most heartbreaking thing to me is when Domin Hall Gleason gets up and he's just, this is the best day of my life. (laughs) He's so excited for this. The people are going to be go crazy. And he starts to play his song. And that's when Frank basically just refuses to sing realizes well what he says is the music is shit the music is shit the music is shit (laughs) so he goes from this is the best day of my life to a singer falling on the ground the person he idolizes (laughs) telling him that his music is shit in front of all of these people (laughs) and then that leads to the the weird sort of like now gleason and and uh frank I should just keep, I keep calling him Gleason. His character's name is John, but I'm just going to keep calling him Dom Hall Gleason. I'm like, how do you pronounce his name? I'm saying Dom and Hall, but it's that Dom. Seems, and... That seems right because they're the H in the middle. Yeah. Anyway, so this is the, basically the Midnight Cowboy portion of the film. <laughs> yeah. Where they're just sort of like, they're, it's just like, it's really pathetic where they're just in these like dingy motels and they're just like struggling to figure out how to what's the next step forward and they get into little scuffles <laughs> and then it builds to this moment where he's just like take this take the head off just take it off and it's really shocking <laughs> you're like oh no like leave this poor guy alone haven't you paid him good like at least have him be in the safety of this of this, of this mask and uh, <laughs> yeah it's just it gets so tragic <laughs> and uh, that's followed by a scene where Frank is hit by a car and his his mask, the, the head breaks and he runs off. And then when uh, Gleason's character is trying to 
figure out what's going on. He gets hit by a car. <laughs> Uh, this this movie's really good at just constantly sprinkling in those little bits of absurd comedy. Like even when the movie hits its like serious notes or hits its tragic notes, it's like really good at consistently every few minutes throwing a gag your way that's really good. Like yeah. this du- this double car hit. <laughs> and did you notice so inside the so when the 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 head breaks, it's broken in pieces on the ground. And I was I, I paused it to look, and it looks like there's wires in the head. It's not just a paper mache head. I think there's something, there's some sort of audio something going on in there because there were some hmm. there were some wires in it. Anyway, so Gleason's character wakes up and he's trying to figure out how to find Frank, but he doesn't know his last name. He doesn't know what he looks like. He can't find him. <laughs> yeah. I like that the cops are like, how old is he? He's like, ah, like, he's like mid thirties to mid fifties. Somewhere, like, he's no help at all. He's like, I have no idea. I've never, I've only heard his voice and know how tall he is. Sort of. Um, <laughs> how do, yeah, how do you help find this guy without his mask? Yeah, it's, it's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then he's at this at this point he's sort of he just he becomes. Like uh, Vincent Gallo's character in the Brown Bunny, he's just kind of driving around, <laughs> looking for looking for Frank, looking for the band. It's you know sort of odd, magically realistic. There, actually, the, there's a nice joke I won't give away about how he finds the band, and there, without Frank, uh, the the three other remaining members of the Son of Infraisons. Uh, that's the name of the band that I can't pronounce. <laughs> they are playing, they're singing like old folk songs in this sad bar on this very high stage. And so basically he tracks down the band and they obviously are not happy to see him at this point. I, he's decided to do the right thing. That's the turn in the movie. He's going to try and get the band back together, which is, you know, a sort of a a trope, I guess, since the Blues Brothers, but uh, maybe <laughs> before. And but again, it's sort of like this very sweet, understated way. He, he uses Twitter and people uh, trying to help him find Frank and someone finally directs him to Frank's home and he meets his uh, Frank's parents and they're seemingly nice people and Frank is weird and this is the first point when we see Frank without the head and it's Michael Fassbender playing Calvin Johnson uh, <laughs> and I really what I really love about this part and this is like what really kind of sealed the deal of the whole movie for me and also at the very end is that it's like is Gleason is well, like, what happened? Like, why is he this way? Like, what tragedy, like, did he live through? Like, what made him become this sort of eccentric, like, shut-in, like, damaged man? And the parents are like, nothing. He's just mentally ill. Like, we, we, we're great parents. Our family life is great. It's just he was born with a mental illness, which is just exactly how it is. <laughs> like, that's the truth. And I've never really seen that in a movie before because usually it is sort of like oh this he was a kid and this happened or this thing happened and that's why he wanted to wear these masks and hide it's like no he suffers 
and lives every day with a mental illness and this is how he's dealt with it and then and then it's now it's not going so well for him and i really love that the movie like just completely directly deals with it like immediately like that like i like that it isn't beating around the bush it's like no we're our household was great it has nothing <laughs> to do with his life it's just the way his brain was made that's just how it is unfortunately for a lot of people and i just loved that that movie the movie went there yeah yeah with the father uh, telling uh, i actually made him his first head <laughs> yeah you're not and then this leads to i don't know when you were watching this did you know that he was taking frank because it's he sort of just leaves and we feel like it's just a nice little subtle thing like we just feel like he's driving off and then he gets there and the band's playing and that's when it's revealed that he brought frank and just watch the movie. This last scene. Oh, it's the, so good. It's, it's so good. It's such a great ending. Oh it's so it's I, I'm tearing up thinking about it. Just watching them say, watching Maggie Gyllenhaal watch Frank start to come out of his shell and the band play together is so moving. It's so incredibly moving. And and it's and it's the only time you actually see Fassbender actually singing where you see his face. And in just this one little scene, like his performance is so good. It's so powerful. The song is great. Like the song has been in my head all week since I've seen the movie. Like I hear this song is like in my head when I wake up and what he's singing about is speaks volumes and the, the performances and the way that the band kind of the, the whole relationship. And it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful ending. One of the most beautiful endings. <laughs> Of any movie I've ever seen. The best is they... So at, at first we're watching Gleason watch all this. And then we we watch all this. He's sitting at the bar with his beer. And then when we cut back, he's no longer there. And the, the it's just the beer bottle. And the music's <laughs> playing. And then we cut to him just like he was at the beginning, walking alone. But... I don't know. Like, it's such the whole thing, like a lot of at the end of the movie, the main character learned something, yeah. but usually they tell us that they learned something or they demonstrate it in some more, I don't know, imp, more, uh, less impactful way, but more on the button kind of way. Yeah. And this was just that to me, that's a perfect a perfect ending to a flawless film. I agree. (laughs) This is a five out of five star movie. Truly. Like I know I'm one for hyperbole, but (laughs) the way I felt at the end of this movie was like, I've not felt this way after watching a movie before. Like, like this, like this is, it was a new feeling for me. I didn't know I could have such feelings for a movie with a man who wore a paper mache head the whole time. Didn't know that could be in the in the in the cards. Didn't know it was gonna happen. <laughs> and let's I mean, we've gone through the whole plot. Let's talk about Fassbender's his performance for a second. He's one of those few actors that had the challenge uh of where you can't see his face for which is like you know a major tool that an actor needs is his face. And just like with the Mandalorian or V for Vendetta 
or every Friday the 13th <laughs> slasher movie, you have your main character where you can't see their face and they have to act with their voice and their body. And he does such a great job. And I have no doubt in my mind that that's him the whole time. Like that's definitely Fassbender the whole time playing it. I don't think they just put an actor in and put his voice in, you know, like he definitely feels like, I feel like that must be him the whole movie. Do you agree? Yeah. 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 And it's just such a good, it's just so good. It's just like, in the, and like, and then the way he acts when the mask is off and it's just like, that is a hard challenge for an actor. It seems like it'd be really easy of like, Oh, it's easy. You don't have to do anything with your face. You can just sit there and do your lines. But like, no, that, that's like even harder now. Like ha- like more than half of your tools have been taken away from you. And, but it, but you do feel things like the whole movie like I'm, I'm into this character. It's not just looking. It's, it's not a. It doesn't play as a gimmick ever. It's like, which was I think why I avoided this movie for so long because it seemed like it was going to be kind of gimmicky. But and mm-hmm. you just, you just kind of accept it. Even before Scoot McNary says like, just go with it. Like I was accepting to be like, this is this character. This is who he is. Like his face isn't changing, but like I'm invested in this person. It's a great performance, and I think definitely. His most underrated because he's a very famous actor, very you know praised in many things. But like I think no, it's weird that nobody talks about this. Maybe because people mistakenly think of it as a non-performance, but it actually is like an extra good performance from him. Yeah, Are, were there any specific like moments that if you were going to say, hey, well here's some here's an example of some great in the head acting. <laughs> I mean. I don't know. It's just like the whole thing, but like definitely the parts where he is trying to bond uh, with or with Gleason or Gleason trying to bond with him, like in those moments or like in the moments when he's realizing that maybe people like his band, just sort of the way he, you can feel the emotion shift, not just with his voice, but the way he holds his body, like when he's excited or when he's like kind of a little uh, unsure and it's all just kind of with the shoulders and just sort of his like his gait and like just the 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 I don't know it's just it's because it's not just you don't see his face his voice is also slightly muffled because of the mask so it's like extra challenging but it's it's really I don't know it's just good and then even when his mask is off he's playing a character who doesn't look people in the eye and is looking at the ground so even in the scenes where you see Michael Fassbender he's not like really looking at the camera He's kind of looking down and you just kind of see maybe the almost like at the top part or side of his face. So either way, he's he's has very little in terms of screen presence with using his face and has to do it with his body. And I think it's just great through the whole thing. Honestly, even at the very beginning when he's just in the van and you just hear him and you don't even see him. That's good acting. (laughs) (laughs) We just know he's around the corner and you can't tell, but you can tell there's a presence there. And, and I think someone else would have maybe played this role too big, tried to make up for the lack of face and gone bigger. Mm. And he doesn't. It's like a really subtle performance. And it's not a quiet performance necessarily, but it's like there's the way. Yeah, it's just it's brilliant. I think it's a great, great acting job from him. Yeah, I don't think anyone plays it big in this. Everyone, no. every performance is so, I don't know, just like organic feels very I, I feel these people all of them i feel like i know them <laughs> yeah uh so it, and let's talk so the music is Great. by uh a guy named steven rennix i looked him up 
he's done a lot of British TV and film. Um, the guy should be a he should be a songwriter. I, has, I agree. These songs are, are fantastic. I, I really expected that I was going to see that he was some indie songwriter guy. Because you because that, that I feel that's what movies usually do when someone's the struggling songwriter. You're like, oh, uh, Prince wrote these songs actually, <laughs> or whatever. Like it's not. It, it's not a nobody because that's why the music is like better. Because like, if you, if I just was going to write a movie about a great songwriter, I wouldn't be able to write great songs because I'm not a songwriter. But the fact that they just got this guy who is not known for his songwriting writing these amazing songs like that's a hard job to take on to be like you have to write the songs of an eccentric genius. Can you do that <laughs> and make it believable? Uh, but he does, and the music's really good. And I, yeah, I totally thought like. And the end credits would be like, oh, it's this band that I recognize and they did the music. But no, it was, I guess the actors really did play all the instruments. And this guy wrote these songs and it's great. Like, I can't wait to, like, if the soundtrack exists, I don't know. But I would want it. Like, this is music I would just listen to in life. Yeah, it's, I'm looking here. He, during the late years in the 1980s, Renix was a member of a band called The Prunes, which traveled through nightclubs in France and Germany playing punk music. So I don't know if that, uh, that doesn't necessarily, I mean, he, so he's played in some bands, but yeah, there's, there's, there's no evidence anywhere else in his career of something, of a record like this that I'm going to want to listen to over and over again. <laughs> so that's pretty amazing. And then, he, then the director, Lenny Abramson, he doesn't have anything else in his catalog that is like this. No. Uh, that I, At least that I'm aware of. There's a film called What Richard Did that I want to look, at, look up, out for. It's, uh, l- let's see, uh, loosely based on Kevin Powers' Bad Day in Black Rock, not Bad Day at Black Rock, and is inspired by the real-life death of Brian Murphy. So uh, I... It, that doesn't really tell us much about this. We, I should, uh, I should check that out. But then there's also Room, which is the one we've talked uh, a great deal about, and that was just a year after this one. And obviously, Brie Larson won the Academy Award for that. And it is, it, I, I will say that I have seen that film and. It does share some of some similar qualities with this in the sense that it also feels pretty organic and just feels very the world that he films <laughs> is one that you I don't know feel welcomed into. Like we I don't know, yeah. like going back to the island, that is a very flashy and hard and jagged world (laughs) clean and like this is a this is just a very lived in world he creates these lived in worlds and i don't Uh, think that he meant or knew that room was going to be as big as it was it doesn't feel like a movie it doesn't feel like he wanted to make an oscar Beatty movie do you agree like it seems like he didn't maybe they didn't know that that movie was going to hit the way that it did yeah it's not 
I think more that what's what's interesting about it is creating the world that this woman creates for her kid in this room. And it feels like that's a compelling idea. But yeah, you're right. Not one that looks like, oh, I'm going to make this big movie. <laughs> and then it's and then after that, he waits three years. He doesn't like have some big film ready to go after the Oscars. He yeah. waits three years and comes out with a film called The Little Stranger, which is a gothic drama with Dom Hall Gleason again. And so he must they must like working together. But I haven't seen this film. I don't know anything about it. I got to check it out. Um, Isn't it nice to see someone make a movie that means something and then make another movie that means something that gets awards and acclaim and not go make some bullshit comic book movie? <laughs> Yeah, how refreshing that there's a filmmaker out there that actually is just staying true to like what they want to do and not sell out big time. Maybe that's because he learned from Frank. You don't need to aim to try to make your four quadrant for everybody thing. Just do the thing that you want to do that means something to you and the people that make it with you. He's following his own themes, which is great. <laughs> So maybe he, know, maybe, he know, maybe he knows he would be on the floor of the Oscars, like in the fetal position, just like not being able to handle <laughs> getting an Oscar. Uh, Do you think that the fact that Lenny Abramson is from Rathen Farnham, Dublin, Ireland, Rathen Farnham, maybe that's how you pronounce the band's name. Rathen Farnham. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I want to get this band's name right. How do we? If you if you think you know how to say this name, this band's name, write to us. We'll or have send you on a the show. post a video so we can see here. <laughs> post on Instagram a video of you saying it, and we'll pick the best one. Uh, uh. cool. Well, <laughs> yeah, I. It, I really just hope more. I hope I hope everyone who listens to this has checked out this film. It did not. It was not a big box office success it was some something of a critics i mean i want to say darling uh a, a critics fa passing fancy but <laughs> yeah if you've especially if you've ever been in a band i can't imagine that this film won't please you and yeah. challenge you and entertain you and i hope inspire you it, it certainly does for me so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one's. I don't think anyone's talked about this movie. I don't think there's any podcast about this movie. I'd be shocked if there was. I think we're on. Yeah, because you think something like this would be like a culty thing or something, but maybe that's not even a thing anymore. Who knows? It's just so weird. But yeah, I I don't understand why this movie's not clicking with people. So let's change that. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word. 
You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Do you call yourself a music fan? Are you the one making the playlist for all the parties? Then you've got to listen to the Pinch Music Podcast, where we interview musicians, engineers, producers, and music lovers of all types. We even put together playlists for any and all occasions. So if you want to have the Beatles vs. Stones debate, pick up some engineering tips, or just discover a new artist, you got to check out the Pinch Music Podcast, all a part of the Paperhouse Network. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Have you ever had a band like this on uh, Radio Able? Have you ever had a band where they hid like their uh, their face or hid their body? Oh yeah, I did. I did a show. I didn't have them on as a band. I wanted to, but there's a uh, a band from Seattle called Shit Ghost, <laughs> and the guy, the main singer, is in a mask and has a. He uses a vocal, uh, one of those things that they use to just to hide someone's voice. So he sounds like this. Um, and so yeah, I that. That was on, uh, let me see, what was that episode? That was one of the episodes that we did in Seattle. Oh, by the way, what are we talking about? Are we talking about Radio 8 Ball? Yeah. Yeah, it's the show where we answer questions by picking songs at random and interpreting those randomly chosen songs as the answers. And yeah, Shit Ghost was on the show with Tobias the Owl, uh, who is not an owl. (laughs) <laughs> and he is not named Tobias. And that was on March 11th, 2018. We recorded it in Seattle. And I will post the link in the show notes. So if people want to check out Shit Ghost's appearance on Radio 8 Ball, they can. And how about you? You host a podcast called The Director's Wall with your co-host AJ Gonzalez, where you explore a filmmaker's filmography has uh is is there any resonance with Frank and Frank Coppola? <laughs> no, Francis Ford Coppola is not afraid to put himself out there. Uh <laughs> but, but he is an artist who has been he is a person who has been able to figure out how to make your small thing and cross over into being the big thing and still be successful. Though in the last 20 years he's kind of gone back into just doing the small stuff. Like he's kind of given up on doing these big movies and his last three or four movies have been these small, intimate, uh, personal things. And they're really, really good. So maybe he's like embraced the idea of being, it's okay to not make some huge movie with a big crew and just do a small, intimate thing like a Tetro or a youth without youth or Twixt or these kind of these weirder, smaller things that aren't the type of normal Hollywood, you know, movie. You think of uh, Sofia Coppola as maybe being a little bit more Frank-like? For sure, I can see that, but th- it's definitely hard. I mean, no, you know, yeah, because she did have a big hit with Lost in Translation, 
but then had after that kept making challenging strange things like somewhere is a movie that like nobody really likes and is really challenging and is very different and you think that like from making your big bill murray movie you would go on the big things and there was always talk of like oh she'll do something for disney or something but it hasn't happened um i don't know she's definitely always on the outskirts i feel like she could be friends with maggie gyllenhaal's character right (laughs) i mean that's the I feel like she could she would hang with this band. <laughs> yeah, that or, or yeah, or, ma- or cool marry thing. the somebody Scoot McNary from this band. <laughs> Marion McNary, Marion yeah. McNary. Um, well, I hope people check out your. Where are we? Uh, let's not even get into where we're at. <laughs> Just to to pull to pull down the the curtain a little bit. Uh, this is one of our first episodes of season two, but we're recording it way back in, uh, in the summer. So we don't know where you're going to be at with director's wall. We might be on a point. different director. We might already be, you know, onto Michael Bay at this point. Hey, let's <laughs> maybe we're on to the rainmaker <laughs> and you'll be our special guest. So I'm that'll looking be forward exciting. to that. Um, <laughs> so while we're behind the curtain, uh, this is the first episode of season two And there's something we're going to be doing at the end of each of these episodes, which is coming back to correct anything we got wrong and apologize (laughs) for things we wish we hadn't said. And uh, I have a couple of those with this episode. Uh, Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I'll give you the one that's exciting that I I just want to add. So we were talking about how great the music for this film is from uh, Stephen Rennix. And I forgot to mention that... Stephen Rennix also did the music for Death of a Ladies Man, the film that I raved about in our Oscars episode. Ooh. And that, I think, makes Stephen Rennix one of my favorite film composers. He immediately jumped up because both of them, both of those films are such original films that rely heavily. They would fail if the music wasn't great. They're yeah. almost musicals. Yeah. They are. They're based, they are musicals. But they don't feel I, I want to say almost musicals because if you don't like musicals, you still might like these They're, They don't. <laughs> so, yeah. Bravo to Stephen Rennix. Uh, the other part is listening back to this episode. I feel like uh, I used if someone was of a mind to be critical or sensitive, they could see that I might have used some insensitive language when discussing mental illness using words like nuts and crazy and losing it uh, to describe things that goes on to go on in the movie. And there's a part of me that wants to be like, Oh, come on. I like, I can, I have all kinds of stories about why I feel entitled. I feel like I had those, all those describe me, but whatever I feel there's all these ways that I feel entitled to use that language. And at the same time, when I'm listening to it and thinking that it might hurt somebody, I just, it's, I'd rather just apologize and say that's not my intention and (laughs) if the intention was to make someone feel othered or less you know whatever and if you if you feel like i'm insensitive then it's true i admit it i was insensitive and but i'm not quite insensitive enough to listen to it over and over again and not think hmm i probably should say something so uh that's that's uh, that's a kind of an apology you know (laughs) well from someone who lives with actual horrible mental illness i was not offended but maybe i'm crazy well that's nuts man (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I I use those words all the time too, but uh, you know, I I would never be like, oh, that crazy guy, that crazy guy in that mental institution. I don't think I would say that. Yeah. But I would, but I would say like, man, that car exploding, that was crazy. Yeah. Um, okay. or I say insane a lot. Like, oh, that's insane. Um, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't use that to describe like Francis Farmer or anything like that. That would just be rude. Right. But again, but I, what about when we're you know, talking about the drummer? <laughs> In the water at the beginning of this movie. <laughs> what is he doing? He is, I guess he's having an episode. He's having, yeah, he's having a fit. He's losing it in the water. He's going crazy. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, I, I'm sorry. Well, I, I, I'm glad that you're sensitive to apologize. I think that's good of you to do that. But To the extent that I did. It's, you know, at, at any rate, uh, <laughs> Just watch the movie. The movie does a much better job of handling these issues than I have, certainly. So uh, if you uh, if you like what we do on this show, I encourage you to uh, reach out to us, send us emails, letters, uh, you know, nothing exploding, but, you know, (laughs) explosive ideas. we, We welcome them. Uh, you can find us at contact at the world is wrong podcast dot com on Instagram at the world is wrong podcast and at our website at www.theworldiswrongpodcast.com and next week what is it, what are we going to be talking about next week <laughs> uh what are we talking about next week <laughs> wilder napalm oh that's next week already yeah wow Wow, I thought we were you were gonna say you're gonna put a special guest in between. Well, I'm honored that that's the next episode. That's great. Of course, and we <laughs> encourage people to check it out. It's uh, it's not easy to find, but if you're of a mind to find it, you can. I I tracked down a laser disc, so <laughs> it's out there. It's way out there, man. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> Ring-a-ding-ding. So, uh, yeah, we'll see if you can find that film. And until next time, just remember, folks, that um, wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. Hey, man. What are you doing? I'm composing a song. Yeah, man. I know. What? I know what it feels like to try to write a song and it just comes out shit. Here, let me hop in the saddle. Here's a little love song I wrote a long, long, long time ago. Stillness of the winter night The frozen water's icy skin Is broken by the boatman's oar Be still and let me Mmm.
stays down. See? Ship too. But look, John, sooner or later, you're gonna get the feeling. Why can't I be frank? Or maybe I can be frank. But John, there can only be one frank. One. Actually, Don, I think both our songs were excellent. Yeah, right? Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.